These missiles, together with 43,000 Soviet personnel, were installed in Cuba, and they were just beginning to set up these missiles when suddenly, and very late in the day, the Americans noticed. Hello, and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name is Oliver Webb Carter, and I'm the editor and your host. This week's pod is with Max Hastings, the legendary historian and author of countless history books. He's also edited major newspapers and was the first journalist into Port Stanley at the end of the Falklands War. He's written a new book on the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, for some of you, this may have been a distant event in the early 60s with little relevance today. For others, It'll be the moment when the world was almost destroyed in nuclear annihilation over 13 days in October 1962. That's not hyperbole, as we'll hear. The Russian Premier, Nikita Khrushchev, started the whole crisis with his decision to antagonise the Americans, who were already extremely wary of Soviet nuclear capability. American generals, though, seemed to delight in their enthusiasm for nuclear conflict. In the middle of it all, John F. Kennedy navigated his way to a deal that meant peace was maintained. It was his finest achievement. Well, listeners, we're now in a world with another Russian leader behaving erratically, and many more countries than in 1962 now hold nuclear weapons. The lessons of the crisis are relevant today, but of course history doesn't repeat, it rhymes. Please do subscribe and give me a good rating if you can, but I'll hand you over to Max and I. Max, thank you so much for joining and and to talk about your new book, Abyss. It's always a pleasure, Oliver. <laughs> well, this story is, I mean, I was always sort of, I was born well after the events of, of 1962, but, and I was always aware that, you know, that we came close to, to nuclear war, but that's about, I, I, you know, thinking about it any more deeply than that. But the book really brings home how close everything was and, and what a momentous event it was. And then as you write in your introduction, we have the, um, the current events in Ukraine. So it becomes even more relevant. Well, when I started out on this book, it, it felt like writing another piece of history. And it was an um, odd one out among my um, my works, because um, all the past ones have been about wars that happened. This one, of course, was about a war that mercifully for mankind um, didn't actually happen, but came so close. And so many people, it has to be said, on both sides of the Iron Curtain, as we called it, in the middle of the Cold War, actually wanted it to happen. They wanted war, that it is a sort of miracle that it didn't happen. But when I started out, that it just felt like this was all to do with the past. But now suddenly again, we see in the Kremlin another reckless risk taker um, who is prepared repeatedly uh, to expose the West to nuclear threats and who I believe to be a less responsible player than was Nikita Khrushchev, the Soviet Union's leader in 1962. So suddenly the whole thing has an importance to try and understand what happened 60 years ago and what lessons we can learn for the future. And of course, the first lesson uh, for everybody is be afraid that somehow we've all had such spoilt existences 
in the last 30, 40 years. It may not have seemed so, but when you look at it, that we hadn't been involved in big wars, only small wars a long way away, that it's only in recent years that climate change has suddenly started to be a big factor. Nobody's been obliged to fight. We've had enough to eat. We've been warm. We've been uncomfortable. And therefore, we've been able to set aside in our minds the huge risk that these nuclear weapons, which terrified the world in all the years of the Cold War, they've always been there. And now suddenly, dangerous tyrants are rattling them all over again. And we begin to see how the world felt in 1962. And I'm so struck when I was researching Abyss by the number of people who were around at that time, and I was a teenager myself, so I remember a bit of it, who really did believe that the world was going to come to an end, that we were all going to be blown up, that um, I was reading a memoir by um, another elderly man now, who was then a schoolboy, who said, I really, really believe that President Kennedy was going to call Khrushchev's bluff, and that we were all going to be incinerated. And, and this was um, somebody who was a 13-year-old um, a in 1962 at school. So these fears were very real. So, Max, how do we get to the events of 62? Because presumably, uh, ever since the Russians had had a nuclear bomb, uh, the threat of nuclear war was was a constant. Uh, the Cold War, which, of course, really began in 1945, when, um, with the end of the Second World War, that Stalin had seized a new empire in Eastern Europe. And Stalin made dire threats in which he told the West, he said, there cannot be peaceful coexistence between capitalism and communism. Um, at times, uh, Soviet leaders said, we will bury you to the West. And the West believed them. And the West uh, fortified Europe, Western Europe, in preparation for a possible attack by the forces of what was known as the Warsaw Pact. Um, that Soviet tanks confronted American tanks in Berlin, which then, of course, was an outpost of, of, of the West in, in the middle of uh, Eastern Germany, which was then um, a communist state. And at every turn, the President of the United States and the Prime Minister of Britain and other Western leaders, they really believed that a, a, a showdown, a nuclear showdown with the Soviet Union might come. So one always has to see that the world was on a hair trigger. And in the midst of all this in 1962, you had generals on both sides of the Iron Curtain who were terrifyingly willing for war, that especially uh, in the American camp, that the leaders of the United States Air Force, in particular, General Curtis LeMay, who was um, the, the head of the, uh, of, the, of the USAF, and he was a figure straight out of uh, that great satirical uh, black comic movie, uh, Dr. Strangelove, that Curtis LeMay um, was absolutely convinced that war with the Soviet Union could be a great thing for the United States because the United States is going to win it. Uh, that the United States had a superiority of 70 to 1 in nuclear weapons. And Curtis LeMay believed that far from this being the moment when the Soviet Union and the communists were going to bury the United States, that this was the opportunity for the United States to bury um, the Soviet Union and the wicked communists. So there were a lot of scary people on both sides of the Iron Curtain. 
But it did come out of the blue, despite all these threats. I'm always amazed, the longer I, I study um, history, intelligence, so-called, on which everybody spends billions of pounds gathering intelligence, and again and again, intelligence gets it wrong. That there's a failure to understand reality. Now, in particular, in 1962, nobody in the Western camp really understood that the Soviet Union, which seemed um, a real rival to the United States, was actually an economic basket case. And its leaders at a time when in America, everybody was eating steak and watching colored televisions, that in the Soviet Union, if you were lucky enough to have a television at all, um, you had to watch a tiny screen uh, through a, a magnifying glass filled with water. And this is in black and white. And there were bread shortages. There were people hungry across the Soviet Union. And yet um, none of this had really got across. But the one man who thoroughly understood uh, the mess that the Soviet Union in was Nikita Khrushchev, the uh, Soviet Union's leader. And at every turn, he was trying to boost up the, the, the stature of the, of the Soviet Union in the eyes of the world to see off um, a threat to um, his own communist leadership, both within the Kremlin and from, uh, from uh, China. Mao's China kept accusing the Soviet Union of being soft on the West. Um, and all the time, here is Nikita Khrushchev, um, a remarkable man, um, a com completely uneducated uh, former industrial worker who's risen on Stalin's uh, petticoat, on the back of Stalin's tailcoat uh, to the leadership of the Soviet Union. And like all the other Soviet leaders over the previous 30 or 40 years, he'd been complicit in the most terrible things, the most terrible mass murders. Nobody got the top of the Soviet Union without being steeped in blood. But Stalin had now been dead for nine years and Khrushchev, nobody could possibly call him a liberal, but he was far less bloodthirsty than Stalin, and he'd released hundreds of thousands of prisoners from the Gulag. So in one sense, uh, he was an improvement on Stalin, but another, he couldn't help himself from making desperate threats of what the Soviet Union might do to the West. And those threats were believed in Washington. And in Washington, they didn't understand that the Soviet Union was half-starved and the Soviet Union's generals knew perfectly well how great was the American nuclear superiority. So in April 1962, Khrushchev came up with a brilliant new idea. Fidel Castro, who had taken over Cuba with Che Guevara uh, a couple of years earlier, that Fidel Castro was Russia's new best friend. This is 90 miles from, uh, from the American mainland. But Fidel Castro sat there on his island. He was making desperate threats to the Americans, which enraged them. And of course, Cuba was a weak, relatively poor little island. It, was a, it seemed a wonderful base from which to advance um, the interests and the stature of the Soviet Union, and frankly, to frighten the Americans out of their wits. So one day in April, He's at his dasher on the Black Sea, and Khrushchev says to his defense minister, Marshal Maninovsky, how would it be if we put a hedgehog down Uncle Sam's pants? That was his exact phrase. He came up with a proposal to deploy strategic ballistic missiles um, in Cuba, 90 miles from America, 
and he said, to completely transform the balance of power uh, between East and West, and also uh, make Castro uh, immune from attack by, uh, by the Americans. So he thought this was a great idea, and the generals went along with it, the Soviet generals. And unbelievably, um, Khrushchev's plan was to deploy these missiles secretly, and then to make a big speech to the United Nations in November, um, of which he announced this and frightened the wits out of Washington. And did the Russians think the Americans wouldn't notice? Well, it was incredible that the generals allowed themselves to be persuaded that these missiles could be literally hidden under palm trees in Cuba. And in this age, when satellite reconnaissance was getting going, when the Americans had U-2 uh, high-altitude reconnaissance aircraft, it was incredible that anybody ever fell for this. But fall for it, they did. These missiles, together with 43,000 Soviet personnel uh, installed in Cuba, um, and they were just beginning to set up these missiles when suddenly, and very late in the day, the Americans noticed on October the 16th, 1962, that Kennedy is in his pajamas in, uh, in the White House uh, while his kids are watching TV, and suddenly in comes his national security advisor uh, carrying uh, um, high-level photographs just taken by U-2 aircraft, and he says, Mr. President, the Soviets have installed ballistic missiles in Cuba. So, Max, we've got Kennedy. He's in office for only 18 or so months. What was his reaction? The, the first reaction of Kennedy was, we're going to have to bomb them. And he sent for his brother, his closest counsellor, uh, 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 Bobby Kennedy, who was um, only 36 years old, but he was attorney general, and he was Kennedy's enforcer. He was the hard man. And he just said, said, shit, 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 those son of a bitch Russians. So the first reaction of the Americans was, um, what are we going to do? And the second reaction was, we're going to have to attack them. And still in deadly secret, because the world didn't know what the White House knew. They started holding a procession of meetings in the White House, which are absolutely riveting. And we got the transcripts. And of course, uh, I use the transcripts extensively in my book. And at these first meetings, most people thought there was going to have to be war. And the combined chiefs of staff, America's military brass, delivered a unanimous recommendation for massive bombing of Cuba, and followed by invasion and occupation of the island, which almost certainly would have led to war. Because the key point in my whole book is that, uh, yeah, some historians have said the danger of war wasn't that great, because um, neither Khrushchev nor um, Kennedy wanted war. But the point was that in addition to the strategic missiles in Cuba, they'd also installed tactical nuclear weapons, um, scores of them. And I don't believe it's credible that if the Americans had invaded, if um, Russian forces on the island were being beaten, they were taking thousands of casualties, a rain of bombs was dropping on their heads that the local uh, Soviet commanders on Cuba would just have sat there and not use some at least of those tactical nuclear weapons, which almost certainly would have escalated into global war. And that was something Robert McNamara, the US Defense Secretary, he said long afterwards, when he, they, the Americans didn't know in 1962 about the tactical nuclear weapons on Cuba. 
And he said, as soon as um, historians told him that it had been discovered, revealed that there were these tactical nuclear weapons, he said that must have meant war. He said, never mind what the generals wanted. The lieutenants had the power on Cuba uh, to launch those missiles, and he figured they would have done so, and, and that's my opinion too. Right, so the cat's out the bag, and we have two meetings at the top of each government. You've got the XCOM, uh, which is Kennedy's senior um, senior advisors, and then Khrushchev's presidium. And what was the thinking going on at these meetings? Uh, first of all, the meetings in the White House are absolutely gripping, mesmerizing, as they discussed through the week that followed what was to be done. And most of Kennedy's advisors wanted war. They said, right, we've got to go in there. We can't take this. This is a mortal insult to, uh, to the United States. We've got to go in there and take these people out and take out Castro and, um, and CNN to uh, communists in Cuba. In the Kremlin, uh, they were that first week feeling pretty pleased with themselves that uh, Khrushchev believed that he'd done something pretty clever that the secret was being kept. He didn't know about the U-2 photography until suddenly, uh, five o'clock on Monday, um, six days after Kennedy um, had been told of the missiles, that um, in the Kremlin, they suddenly hear Kennedy is going to broadcast to the American people. And Khrushchev immediately realized, he tells his son, he says, the Americans must have discovered the missiles. And sure enough, uh, at seven o'clock that evening, Washington time, uh, Kennedy broadcast to the American people. And he says, um, we've discovered these missiles in Cuba. This is intolerable. They got to go. Uh, we are prepared to go to any lengths to remove these missiles from Cuba. And he announced a blockade, a naval blockade of the island uh, to stop any further weapons getting there. Uh, and the blockade was to take effect within 24 hours. And what was the global reaction? The world was stunned, and the American people were stunned. Now, America's allies, notably including Britain, uh, publicly, they gave total support to, uh, to the Americans. But privately, Prime Minister Harold Macmillan uh, was appalled. Uh, he didn't believe anything in Cuba was worth uh, uh, the risk of a war. And he wrote in his diary and he told his advisors, he said, um, he said, he told Kennedy, uh, he said, we've had to put up with Soviet missiles within range of uh, Britain and France and Germany for all these years. And there's no legal or moral reason why the Soviets shouldn't be allowed to install missiles on Cuba. Uh, he was appalled by the danger that he thought the risk of an American miscalculation was at least as great as that of the Soviet one. So although he gave Kennedy total support, that all his um, recorded conversations with Kennedy during the crisis, Macmillan was deeply apprehensive and as frightened of an American miscalculation of a Soviet one. Well, through the days that followed, the world um, held its breath. Soviet ships approached the blockade line and the blockade only covered weapons. It didn't cover uh, deliveries of food um, or fuel. And so how effective was the blockade? The first really good news to come out of the blockade was uh, 36 hours after Kennedy made his broadcast uh, 
that news reached the White House that some Soviet ships had turned back on their way to Cuba. And the Americans guessed um, absolutely correctly that Khrushchev had blinked, that Khrushchev had ordered all ships carrying uh, nuclear weapons uh, or supply, military supplies of any kind were to turn around and were not to challenge the blockade. And the Secretary of State, Dean Rusk, said at the uh, cabinet room table in the White House, he said, I think the other fellow just blinked. And the other fellow had blinked. But Khrushchev, although he realized very quickly, privately, that he couldn't see this through, that he got to back off, that the missiles were going to have to be withdrawn from Cuba. He couldn't bring himself to admit it. And so the world was kept on edge and suspense for six more days before um, belatedly, very belatedly, uh, that Khrushchev backed off. And it's very, to me, one of many fascinating things about what happened. Why, in the end, did Khrushchev back up? Partly, of course, it was because Kennedy handled the diplomacy brilliantly, that uh, he did not give in to the warmongers, to his own generals who wanted to invade Cuba. Um, he approached uh, the issues in the most measured and cautious fashion. He realized that at all costs, uh, the great thing to do was to avoid a head-on nuclear collision with the Soviet Union. But also, the Soviets understood that the threat of American force was always there, that if they didn't give in, they were in no doubt that, first of all, Kennedy was surrounded by these um, incredibly bellicose generals who wanted to fight. And secondly, they really believed that if they didn't pull the missiles out of Cuba, the Americans were going to invade. So the threat of force was absolutely essential. But this was a poker game all the way through, and the stakes were so enormous. And you had tens of thousands of American troops moving to the East Coast. You had Florida, an, an American Air Force general I quoted in the book. He said, when we went down to Florida and we saw all the airfields stacked with aircraft, we thought Florida was going to sink under the weight of um, U.S. aircraft bombed up, ready to attack Cuba, of all these Marines getting, uh, um, getting ready to um, embark to invade Cuba. So um, the stakes were enormous. And all the way through, there was this terrible fear of somebody uh, pressing the wrong button, literally. So let's talk about that. How many times um, during the blockade and, and this, this confrontation did we come close to nuclear war? There were moments um, of acute danger when, for instance, the Soviet commanders on Cuba who'd had enough of American reconnaissance overflights suddenly on their own initiative and against Kremlin orders launch a missile which shoots down an overhead U-2 and killing the pilot. And in the White House, this was perceived as um, a decision by the Kremlin so that uh, somebody at the White House table says they fired the first shot. And they assumed only a day before Khrushchev, in fact, backed off, they assumed that, uh, that this was the moment to which the Soviets had decided to escalate, when in fact Khrushchev was appalled when he heard about the U-2 shootout. In the middle of the crisis, and it's almost unbelievable they did this, first the Soviets um, conduct a nuclear test explosion over the Arctic, and then the Americans conduct a nuclear test explosion, a huge one, over the Pacific. So they are actually exploding nuclear weapons to frighten each other, um, saber-rattling or, or 
um, or missile rattling um, in the middle of this crisis, that Soviet submarines at sea in the Atlantic are armed with nuclear torpedoes and US Navy warships on the surface are playing cat and mouse with them and exploding practice depth charges around them. And at least one Soviet captain in the middle of the crisis um, explodes. He completely loses his call. And he says, uh, war must have broken out on the surface. We're going to have to respond. I'm going to not just sit here and take this. We've got to fire our nuclear torpedo. Now, in fact, he was calmed down by other officers. Uh, the submarine did not fire its nuclear torpedo. But the weapons were there, and there were no technological safeguards to stop them being fired. So all the time, the stakes are sky high, and all the time, um, the, the peers on both sides um, are there. So there is a back down, uh, the Russians back down. Um, but and it luckily, we avoided nuclear war. And it does seem to be a lot of luck involved. What was the Russian reaction to to their climb down? The humiliation, I mean, the Khrushchev's, in the eyes of um, his fellow Politburo members in the Kremlin, um, he never recovered his authority in the Soviet Union after backing off. They were furious with him, precipitating this crisis and then backing off at the last minute. And although it was almost two years after 1962, after the 13 days, as they became known, that Khrushchev was deposed, that from that moment on, um, that in the Kremlin, um, his doom was sealed because um, his fellow uh, members of the Politburo, members of the Presidium, they believed that Khrushchev had exposed Russia to humiliation. And so he had. So, Max, we now have war in Ukraine. And what lessons do you think there are um, from the Cuban Missile Crisis in this new, more dangerous world where nuclear weapons are again a reality? I think the first one, as I said earlier, is be afraid that no leader, whether it's the leader of Russia or the leader of, um, of the United States or the leader of Britain um, should ever forget for a moment that these nuclear weapons, these weapons capable of ending the lives of all of us, they're still out there. That Putin has once again embarked on a huge gamble um, which displays a terrifying recklessness. And one thing that's pretty creepy, Khrushchev, when he installed those missiles in Cuba, he had a sort of a case that, of course, it was reckless and provocative uh, that he deliberately sought to challenge the Americans by doing this. But legally and morally, there was no reason why the Cubans shouldn't decide to host missiles in the same way that the British and the Italians and the Turks were hosting um, American missiles um, aimed at Russia. Today, Putin has no case whatsoever. He has no case all that in, he's invaded a, a sovereign neighboring state. Uh, but he believes he can get away with this. And it is much more difficult and dangerous these days to challenge Putin uh, with nuclear weapons because in the Kremlin, they knew in the Kremlin, they knew back in 1962 about the overwhelming American superiority. But these days, that superiority doesn't exist, that the Russians have got an enormous nuclear arsenal, and there is absolutely no doubt that if there was an all-down showdown, we would all be doomed. And Putin is gambling 
that the West is sufficiently sensitive to this, that nobody is going to call, uh, not call his bluff because it's not a bluff, but that nobody is going to be prepared to go to an absolute showdown with it. So, Max, Putin's been threatening uh, the use of nuclear weapons. And a lot of people think that's tactical nuclear weapons, just like the Russians had in Cuba. Where do you think we are now uh, with the threat of nuclear, uh, nuclear attack? I think we're all understanding that at the end of the Cold War, uh, everybody went into a sort of um, fantasy world in which we thought, oh, well, um, that was all very terrible, but now it's over. Today, there's not much doubt that great power competition is back to stay, that we're seeing the beginning of a new Cold War, which is not ideological as the old one was, but is about territory and power and influence. But I also believe that it is absolutely essential to resist, just as all through the Cold War, the West displayed the resolution to confront the Soviet Union for all those years through the Cold War. They did not back off in the face of Soviet threats. So in the same way, uh, it seems essential for the West to stand up to, um, to Russian threats. I don't believe that today there is any military solution, if you can use that word, to what's happening in Ukraine, by which I mean I don't believe that by purely military means, Russia can be expelled from Crimea and the Donbass. But um, I do believe that we have to not only sustain sanctions, but toughen sanctions. The only realistic prospect of getting the Russians to back off is that, first of all, the West toughens sanctions so that oil, all oil and gas exports to the West uh, are barred, which at the moment, of course, many European states are absolutely terrified of happening. And secondly, while Putin will never give in, that we have to hope that some successor will say this confrontation is doing such damage to Russia that Putin must go and we have to arrive at some sort of deal. But I don't believe there's going to be any tidy, happy outcome. And I also think it's very important to remember that at the time, most people were led to believe that the United States had achieved a straightforward victory over the Soviet Union in the missile crisis. That when Khrushchev belatedly and publicly agreed to withdraw his missiles from, uh, from Cuba, that he'd just done so in the face of, um, of American resolution and the threat of American force. It wasn't quite that simple. It was only discovered many, many, many months later that secretly from the beginning, Kennedy had always realized that there would have to be a deal, a bargain to persuade the Russians to back off. And he told them in the last day before Khrushchev agreed to give in, that if they would withdraw the missiles from, uh, from Cuba, the United States would, within months, withdraw its missiles from Turkey. So that was a quid pro quo, which Kennedy managed to keep secret because the right in uh, the United States would have been enraged if they discovered that Kennedy had made any sort of deal, had made any sort of concession. But concessions were made. And I think in the same way that it would be very foolish, only very stupid people today talk about an absolute victory over Russia, because I don't think that's attainable. Sometime downstream, there's going to have to be some sort of dirty deal, I think, to have any hope of ending this ghastly war. 
hopefully it will be a deal on terms that give Ukraine most of what it needs, what it wants, what it's rightfully entitled to. But I don't believe we should kid ourselves that the West or Ukraine will get absolutely everything that it wants, because when you get an armed confrontation, it very seldom works out that way. Well, well, yeah, one can certainly hope that that's how it ends up. I I wondered, there seemed to be a huge amount of enthusiasm amongst certain individuals in 1962 for nuclear confrontation. In particular, Fidel Castro seemed to sort of relish um, a, a conflict and 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 then LeMay in particular as well. Well, there was one terrifying moment in the first few days uh, of the of the crisis when the world still didn't know, and they were still talking around the table uh, in the White House secretly. And at that stage, most of the people in the White House were saying, "We're going to have to invade Cuba." And Bobby Kennedy. Uh, then asked, well, how do the Russians respond? Because they're certainly going to respond. And uh, the military view was they'll probably seize Berlin, which, of course, was then a Western enclave, which British and American and French troops were garrisoning. And um, it was assumed that although the British and French tripwire forces um, would resist, uh, though they couldn't resist for long, that the Russians could grab West Berlin. And Bobby Kennedy then said, well, what happens then? And um, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Maxwell Taylor, shrugged his shoulders and said, uh, I guess we go to general war. Somebody said, you mean nuclear war? And he said, yeah, if it is in the interest of the United States. And the president on the, tra- on the tapes and the transcripts is audibly appalled by this remark of Kennedy. He said that would be the ultimate failure. He, he was appalled that, that Maxwell Taylor didn't seem to understand that you couldn't just say, oh, well, if we have to have a nuclear war, we have to have a nuclear war. And Kennedy, the words of wisdom he spoke when a lot of other people were saying crazy things around the table, he said that would be the ultimate failure. He said everything we do has got to be designed to prevent us going to nuclear war. And it sounds incredible today to say that it took the President of the United States, against the advice of many of his advisors, to point out this vast reality. And I find it quite scary. Um, In my book, I've gone through um, the list of, I haven't specified names, but in my mind, less than half Kennedy's successors as America's president could have been assured of making the same sensible, cautious call. And Kennedy's statesmanship, Kennedy was not a perfect president. Kennedy got an awful lot of stuff wrong. But his handling of the missile crisis, his, um, his calm and his caution, and um, all the time, the clarity of his thinking, the, the one thing that, that mattered, yes, the United States must get these missiles out of Cuba, but not at the cost of, of a general nuclear war. And he saw things with a clarity that, Frighteningly few of the people around the White House table did. And I just do not believe that some of his successors in the White House would have been so wise. And Kennedy's surest claim to greatness was the fact that that he saw his way so clearly through this crisis. He never lost his cool. And it has to be said that in the Kremlin, although the world thought that Nikita Khrushchev was a lunatic, that 
Khrushchev was, I think, a much more rational player than is Putin today. And what finally caused Khrushchev to snap on the last Sunday of the crisis, the 13th day, was when he received a letter from Fidel Castro, the leader of Cuba, saying um, to the Soviet leader, um, if the Americans invade Cuba, then reluctantly, of course, uh, we must accept there will have to be general war and we'll have to use every kind of weapons. And Khrushchev was stunned. He realized that Castro was proposing that if there was an invasion of Cuba, that the Soviet Union should launch a nuclear first strike against the Soviet Union, against the United States. And it was absolutely unbelievable. And, and um, Khrushchev said at that meeting, he said to the fellow members of the Presidium, he said, he said, this is madness. He said, only a man who is entirely blinded by, by revolutionary fervor um, or who doesn't understand the meaning of thermonuclear war could talk like that. But we cannot be as confident today, I don't believe, that Putin is as rational, that this is a sort of megalomaniac uh, who has far less constraints on his actions than the Khrushchev at the Kremlin table uh, 60 years ago. Our, our current um, chiefs of defence staff, what, particularly in America, nowadays one, I think... I, I, it's certainly uh, my understanding that they are, they're a lot more aware of the horrific consequences of nuclear war. And so there doesn't appear to be, you know, certainly not as much um, missile rattling as you, as you describe it. As... I, I, I'd entirely agree with you that um, as far as we know, thank goodness, there's no counterpart of Curtis LeMay in, um, among the American chiefs of staff. But in those days, one has to remember that all these people um, had grown up in the Second World War. Many of them had fulfilled senior roles in the Second World War. Curtis LeMay made his reputation by incinerating half Japan, um, by leading the bomber operations that killed hundreds of thousands of Japanese. And he came home at the end of the war to be hailed as a national hero. And also in 1945, um, the United States had led the Western world to an absolute victory. And the idea of absolute victory was still very deeply instilled in people's heads. The leaders of America had no doubt at all that um, they were the leader of by far the most powerful and important state on the planet. And they wanted to see America use its power to secure its end, to secure absolute victory. And today there's an understanding that um, absolute victories are not on the table, that um, people are much more cautious. They realize it would almost certainly be the end of the planet if we go to nuclear war. In 1962, a scary number of people did not understand that. And um, it is pretty spooky when you look back to those days. Now, President Kennedy, this <coughs> it's, it's certainly his finest hour. Um, and, and Robert Kennedy as well, his closest advisor, seems to have almost had a bit of a he was a very bombastic, confrontational uh, individual, but he he also takes the same line as as his brother. Bobby, um, I think, was a pretty unlovable character, whereas there's not much doubt that, um, especially in his handling of uh, the Western leadership in the in the Cold War, um, Kennedy displayed greatness. That his brother, in my eyes, was never more than a charismatic politician, even on a good day. 
But in the missile crisis, he did display extraordinary common sense. And while some of his first reactions weren't very smart, he realized almost as soon as his brother that um, invading Cuba um, was a last resort and not a first one. And he backed his brother all the way when his brother said, we're going to have a blockade, which the chiefs of staff thought a pathetic response. And Bobby realized that you've got to try every other expedient, diplomatic and a minimal force, which is what the blockade represented, before you went to shooting. And in that sense, Bobby came out of the crisis remarkably well. The, the plans for invasion, the invasion of Cuba were... I mean, you, you've just mentioned that LeMay ha- came out of World War II with this great reputation. Maxwell Taylor, who may be familiar to some over the, the um, uh, Operation Market Garden. Yeah, I mean, he, well, he was one of the leading American paratroop commanders in World War II. And the, but the plans to invade Cuba, Cuba, I mean, reading your book, I was almost open mouthed at how they seemed to sort of make so many assumptions and it didn't seem to be really particularly well thought out. The intelligence was lousy. They thought, the CIA thought, that the Russians had about 5,000 troops on Cuba instead of the 43,000 they really did. They had no inkling about the tactical nuclear weapon. And um, it was only very late in the crisis that um, some of the people around the table in the White House began to understand that an invasion of Cuba was going to be a very bloody business, not just for the Russians and the Cubans, but also um, for the American forces doing the invading. But there was this huge residual um, arrogance in the United States. And one of the things I've tried to do in my book, a lot of the books about the crisis just deal with the 13 days. What I've tried to do is to set them in the wider context of the Cold War. So that anybody who reads the book will, first of all, understand something about what Cuba was in those days and Castro, and quite a bit about what the Soviet Union was, and Nikita Khrushchev, and quite a lot about what sort of country um, the United States was in those days, um, with this curious combination, this curious ambivalence in the United States. On the one hand, there was this extraordinary national confidence that here was the United States enjoying a stupendous economic success, a standard of living undreamt of uh, 10 or 15 years earlier in the United States. And this came with this huge belief that the United States really did seem to have been chosen by God, and God was still very important to them, uh, to lead the world and be the most important and richest country on earth and so on. But matched with this was paranoia about the communist threat, a belief that out there were these evil communists who wanted to take it all away from them. So it was a curious mixture of of conceit and paranoia. Um, And But I also think... And to me, this is very important. The quality of the debates uh, in the upper reaches, if you leave the mad US military out of it, God, they were clever people around the White House table. And one is so impressed by the sort of stuff that was said and the, and the tone of the discussion. And one does worry that nowadays, uh, whether in Britain or America or whatever, you, you wonder if the same quality of leadership is there. And, and Jack Kennedy, I, I'm afraid I'm not a hero worshipper by inclination, but I'm just awed by how brilliantly Jack Kennedy conducted himself. Mm. I mean, apart Um, from anything else, um, how anybody could make jokes uh, in in those extraordinary circumstances. After lunch on um, 
I think it was a Saturday, the first Saturday of the crisis. Um, he went out on the White House balcony with two of his advisors, and he started reading the draft of the speech that they'd written for him to make to the American people. And he looked up from the draft and he said to these guys, he said, we are very, very close to war. But then he added with a moment of black humor, and there isn't room in the White House shelter for all of us. And this sort of black comedy, you have to, um, it does increase one's admiration for, uh, for, I mean, another of his lines to the whole White House table one day, he said, um, he said, looked around the table in the cabinet room, and he said, this is the day when um, we're all going to earn our pay, and you better help, hope that your solution isn't the one that's adopted. Well, this sort of gallows humor, it, it does increase one's respect for Kennedy, that anybody could make jokes in those circumstances. But but one man who I don't, uh, LeMay did not seem to have any, I mean, the Joint Chiefs didn't seem to have much respect for Kennedy. When LeMay says to Kennedy, yeah. you're in one hell of a, a spot or something like yeah, that. Yeah, he said, no, amazingly, the sheer, the insults that, that LeMay at the White House table heaped on Kennedy. He said, you're in one hell of a fix. Um, and Kennedy, the president, the president of the United States, he looks at him and, uh, um, and he said, what do you mean? And LeMay doubled up and he said, you are in one hell of a fix. And Kennedy kept his temper, but he said, and you are right there in it with me personally. But everybody else around the table obviously was stunned that this mad Air Force general um, had the nerve to talk to the president of the United States in this way. And what was even more incredible, LeMay kept his job until his formal retirement two years down the track uh, after Lyndon Johnson had succeeded Kennedy. And it's amazing, but of course, he was a very famous man, uh, um, Curtis LeMay. He made this terrific reputation and Kennedy didn't dare to sack him. Now, I'm not surprised you didn't sack him in the middle of the missile crisis, in the middle of this great, but one is amazed that when it was all over, he didn't. But um, not only were the nutters there, and Kennedy said after the crisis, he said, the military are mad. And so they were. But um, these right wingers who enjoyed enormous support from Republicans in Congress, um, uh, they were out there. They were people who wanted war. Uh, it was um, amusing to, to, to see that LeMay then ends up as vice president, uh, vice presidential um, candidate, along with George Wallace, the racist. Um... Oh, yeah, he was. A, no, he was a right wing lunatic and mm. he was straight out of Dr. Strangelove. And yeah. actually, a lot of the stuff when you re when one read, because I read an enormous number of transcripts of oral history interviews with senior Air Force generals. Um, after the crisis was over, and instead of saying, pew, thank goodness our president got us out of this, most of them were still after the crisis, saying, um, the president let us down, they were just wimps. Uh, we could have had a great victory, we could have got, um, we could have cleaned out that rat's nest, as one Air Force general said of Cuba, and we could have got rid of Castro, we could have got rid of the, all the communists in Latin America. And they were saying this after the crisis. They weren't saying, thank God, we've averted nuclear war. So, God, it was scary, the nutters that were out there. Mm. 
Mm, there's a there's a very good quote you give right at the beginning, um, which is probably a good way to end end uh, our chat. Is you'll never know how Kennedy says to I think a, a, a journalist or a friend, J.K. Galbraith, the economist. Uh, you will never know how much bad advice I received. That's absolutely true. Thank Maybe. you so much, Oliver. It's a pleasure to talk to you and your audience. Thanks, Max. Well, I do hope you're not all worried about where we are today. Coming up, I've got World War II paratroopers and a chat with Simon Seabag Montefiore on his new history of the world through the lens of family. Until then, thank you and good night.